Amanda. And I'm Kristen. And, and we, we are, are the Extra Sisters. Sisters. So sit back, relax, and let's get creepy. Welcome to another Haunted Happy Hour. And in this Haunted Happy Hour, we are going to talk about some haunts from our hometowns. And also one from a listener. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So <laughs> I think I was only one. I honestly like had mentioned it in some episodes, but put it out there on social media like once. That was probably my shortcoming, but... You know, y'all we're could, busy. Life yeah. happens. Y'all also, we mentioned it on here. I know y'all probably <laughs> forget, though. You turn it off and then you go on with like your work days. I totally right. get it. But this probably will be like if y'all want to send in some things about your hometowns, we can always do this episode again because there are many hometowns from listeners, obviously. So we're going to talk about things from our hometowns. I have two hometowns kind of. And I know like because I grew up mostly in a town called Forney and but for the first like six to seven years of my life, I'm from a town called Garland in Texas, but obviously I did most of my growing up from like seven to like, I don't know, 18 and then back and forth from there <laughs> to college, you know, in my 20s right. was in Forney. So that's mostly what I consider like where I'm from. So okay. have some ghost stories from there. And I know you probably have some from around here. So yeah, exactly. So I kind of have a similar thing where I'm kind of from two different towns, but they're right next to each other. So, you know, it really doesn't count that way, the way Amanda's does. But I'm from Manitou Springs, Colorado, and Colorado Springs, Colorado is right there. So I've definitely lived in both places, and I have some stories from Manitou, and I have one from Colorado Springs. So, yeah. And I mean, Forney and Garland are like 15 to 20 minutes, depending on traffic. So they're very they're pretty close proximity yeah it's like you hop on the highway and go across a lake a little bit and you're pretty much in garland so it's not like there's a huge difference it's just when we moved forney was a much smaller town now Mm -hmm. it's interesting because some of these ghost stories that i was reading are around developments that didn't exist when i lived interesting and so you could see how you know these ghosts might be a little mad <laughs> yeah, because all of this land is being developed. I mean, when I go back to Forney, which is where my mom still lives, she does not live in the house that I grew up in. Unfortunately, we had to sell that house when I was like 20, I think, or something like that. 21, maybe doesn't mm-hmm. matter, but we had to sell that house and she lives in a development, but now, but when I go back there, like, I think when I started living there there were like several thousand people like five to six thousand now there's like twenty thousand plus people oh damn or more like it's insane the infrastructure cannot handle that many people so when I exit this little two like I guess it's a four lane highway like two lanes on one side two lanes on the other side to get to Forney it's a small town. It takes me like 45 minutes sometimes to get from there to my mom's house. That's crazy. Just that because just... of the fucking traffic. Like the lights, you're just sitting there forever because they can't handle all of it's it's insane. So, it's really being developed like crazy. And it used to be like everyone had land, there were just fields and fields and fields and now all of those fields are houses. Hmm. So hence the uh, people getting disturbed potentially. Ghosties are mad. Yeah. Ghosties. <laughs> yeah. And like somebody was like, I was walking by this elementary school and I was like, that elementary school was developed after I was in elementary <laughs> school. Now I knew about it because it was like one of the elementary schools that was developed like when I still lived there. But it's just interesting to see all the, you know, the new development landmarks, you know. Yeah, definitely how it's grown. And yeah. honestly, Colorado Springs is doing the same thing. I've I've mentioned it before on here, but it is we have one highway that goes through downtown and now they want to add all this new stuff and I'm also like our infrastructure can't fucking handle it. So good luck with that, but it's like they, people don't think ahead that you have to do infrastructure stuff before you can just add a baseball stadium and things like that. Start pushing in people. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting cuz Colorado Springs is a tier 2 city. But it's like, it's going to be as big as Denver. And I'm like, how? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's got, the, I think, like 700,000 people or something. But they're like, it's going to have a millions on. It's like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and plus the real estate market is just out of control. Dude. Yeah. I mean, but even Texas, like, for as 
relative to what it was. I mean, even their prices are pushing up because getting crazy. Yeah, people are moving out of the more expensive areas and move pushing into, you know, Colorado and Texas and mm-hmm. Arizona and places like that. So obviously it drives the market up. Let me tell right. you, buying a house was not fun. It was fun yeah. the first time, but the second time, not fun. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to it at all. Connor and I are probably going to finally be buying maybe here in a few months. And I'm already looking at houses and it's like, I'll look at them and then the next day they're off market. And I'm like, oh God, this is going to suck so bad. Oh yeah. When we put my house on the market, it was gone in 24 hours with like five or seven offers or something. It was nuts. As a seller, it's fun. But then you're like, (laughs) okay, so now I sold my house and I have 30 days to closing. (laughs) Now I have to go fucking find one. And that was just a got we got beat by cash offers twice and we were not in like a super cheapy price range right so right it was oh my god I cried yeah. like four or five times <laughs> I was awful. terrified yeah yeah so anyways that's not we're not talking about real estate but yeah you know, it just these developments are insane and if you're talking about ghosts in general you know whether you believe or not you know like from horror movies when you develop grounds you get hauntings Yes, exactly. When you disturb people and their resting spots, it goes bad. Right. And in Forney, there is a town, a street. It's called Bodark, which is, it's actually where there's a lot of like historic houses from like the, it's like the historic district of Forney. <laughs> and like okay. there's, there's houses from like the 1920s and before. Some of them were like hauntings from those houses, which was kind of cool. But then I imagine you develop even new houses you get those same era ghosts from like mm-hmm. 1800s and 1900s and they're like the fuck you're on my land what the fuck is this <laughs> right, you know right so yeah and then same thing with like manitou this is where people came mm-hmm. you know it's the clean air and stuff yeah the clean air and the we have min- special mineral waters that people came to drink that would make them feel better and especially for tuberculosis so just think of how many people died there that mineral water is nasty by the way i love it you're crazy i grew up in manatee though so i just wander around to the oh the lithium one so good (laughs) yeah you tell people oh my god that water is so delicious it tastes like evian Mm. and it's like like metal (laughs) It doesn't. It well, it's got minerals in it. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Now I'll drink it because it's a thing. But ugh. yeah. Anyways. All right. I'm gonna start off with a beautiful building in Manitou called the Marmont Castle. A Catholic priest born in France in 1854, Father Francolin was the son of a wealthy aristocrat aristocratic family. His father was a diplomat and at one time was the French consul in what is now called Moscow. He came to the United States in 1878 when he was 24 years old as secretary to Bishop LeMay in Santa Fe and after ordination was in charge of several missions in the parish of Santa Cruz to the indigenous peoples. There was much unrest between the old Spanish Catholic Church and the incoming French Catholic Church. Father Frank Colin was extremely unpopular even, even to being poisoned in the chalice. In 1892, he came as a missionary priest to Manitou, already famous for its healing waters and clean air in hopes of restoring his failing health. His mother arrived in Manitou from New Mexico in July 1893, bringing four French-speaking servants because, it is said, she did not speak English. Newspaper descriptions of the furnishings, tapestries, oils, statuary, antique vestments, and laces and native artifacts, which were displayed in the gallery on the third level, indicate that the family had indeed been wealthy. Although recently translated letters of fathers allude to financial losses prior to coming to Colorado. This could explain why the Gillis brothers had to sue him for payment for their work, and why Father Francolin took out a loan on the property to obtain the funds. Father Francolin had a reputation for being a loner and unpopular with the local residents, although he did have two fundraising balls in 1897, one for a library and one for the poor. The Francolins left for France unexpectedly in 1900, taking valuable artwork with them but leaving their furniture, and Madame Francolin died within a few months. Father Francolin spent his last 10 years in New York, died December 4, 1922, and is buried in the Archdiocese Cemetery. He never returned to Colorado. Then it went to the Sisters of Mercy. 
the Sisters of Mercy came to Manitou on, at the behest of Father Frank Holen, who had donated his first Manitou home for their use as a sanitarium, primarily for the treatment of tuberculosis. They received their first patient in August of 1895, and by March of 1896, they were beginning a large addition to the facility. The sisters were renowned for their excellence of their table, the cleanliness of their rooms, and their motherly care of the health seekers. They did not, however, accept acute cases, which they felt were better served by the hospital in Colorado Springs. The sisters helped to expand the cultural horizons of Vanatu society by offering lessons on piano, violin, mandolin, guitar, and banjo. Miramont was vacant from 1900 to 1904 when the sisters were urged by Dr. German to purchase Miramont for use in conjunction with German priest Sebastian Nepp's water therapy system, which consisted of drinking prodigious quantities of Manitou's mineral waters, as well as bathing in them several times each day. It was never used as the NIP center, however. In 1907, an electrical fire destroyed Mount Calm Sanitarium, which was located where our upper parking lot is now, and the sisters moved their patients into Miramont, where they served for the next 20 years. For the prior three years, changes had been made to the building to accommodate patients during their treatment period, but it was utilized only during the summer. It became known as Mont Calm Sanatorium to keep the familiar name. In 1928, it became economically impossible to continue with the sanitarium, and the sisters used the building for a short time as boarding house for the wealthy, then as a vacation and retreat for House of Clergy, and eventually vacated. It stood empty until it was sold in 1946 to private owners. Located on the far back corner of the upper parking lot is the last remaining TB hut, original to the Sisters of Mercy, where patients who required isolation lived during their stay for treatment. Being a sanitarium, many died at Miramont Castle, and many of those souls have stayed. There are footsteps heard throughout the castle, and objects move. There is even a ghost that haunts the chapel. But Miramont Castle doesn't contain the only ghosts. They also seep into surrounding homes. And in fact, my mother and I almost rented a house right behind the castle, and we specifically didn't because of the negative ghost energy that you felt as you walked through the house, like it would always be theirs and never ours. It is theirs, and it is not yours. (laughs) (laughs) Correct, correct. No. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. So Manitou just feels like when you're... Haunted? (laughs) Yeah, well, and and it's not even like a threatening... Yeah, exactly. It's just like there's more people there than you see. There's just people all around. Yeah, right. It's definitely got that old... I'm not going to say old west kind of feeling because that's not it. It's just, it's just like this old, old town that has existed almost before time is right. how it feels. Like it's just always been frozen because right. it's there. Obviously there are cars driving around, but for the most part, people park and then they just walk up and down the street mm-hmm. and there are little shops and it's just, you don't see the residences. Mm-hmm. it's just yeah. like this main street and like obviously there are residences but they're way up a hill it's almost like etched into the side of a mountain and it's like a postcard you know yes and it's almost like it could have been frozen in time because you don't even really obviously other than the cars it's not like you see a bunch of technology you know lying right. around you go into the shops and there's obviously there's t-shirts one of my favorite ones is like this like bath bomb soap place and like <laughs> you know it, but it just feels like it's they're merchants, you know? Exactly. Like, they have their little kiosks. Yes, it's a standing building, but yeah. they often change a lot. And even before people came out for the healing waters from, you know, New England, we had the Ute Indians there that did the same thing. They would come to Manitou. They were – they didn't – they weren't like the Great Plains Indians where they traveled vast distances, but they definitely traveled – And one of their places to stay was Manitou Springs, and they would make camp there to be with the healing waters and stuff like that. And so even back then, it's just such a spiritual place, and you can, like, feel it when you're there. Yeah, I definitely know why. Like, obviously, I'm not a native, so this is, take my saying this with, like, a huge grain of salt, like a mini, because Kristen grew up there. But it's definitely, like... I wish we could go there more, but it is always so damn crowded. Oh, it's so hard to get there. And I'm so upset about it because I grew up there. Like, that's my town, and I can't even go to it anymore because it takes you an hour to get in there. Yeah. And then you're, like, tired and hot, and you don't want to walk around anymore, and there's 9 billion people, and you're just like, let's just fucking go. 
Yeah. But like at th- I do get it because it is a place where you want to spend time. So yes, it's absolutely. Like if you come to Colorado Springs, even me, people are like, what should I do? And I'm like, you need to see Manitou. Like exactly. You have to see Manitou. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Like, no, I don't want you to go there because <laughs> I want to go there, but you like, you have to see it. <laughs> so. Right. Exactly. It's almost like you, you want to go, but at the same time you're like, oh, but it's going to suck so bad. Yeah. So it's almost like you have to go during the down season, but then it's hard mm-hmm. to get there. Cause it's like when it ices and snows, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's up a hill. It's up the mountain. So. Yeah. Amanda and I tried to go cause my high school has a beautiful track field and it's almost never visited. And Amanda and I were going to start like taking runs or at least walks and try to get more healthy. And we went there one time and the traffic was so bad. We were like, never again. <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, you want it in the fall when it gets like a little colder, but then at the same time people are like watching the leaves change, so it's like Yeah, exactly. Well, part of the problem is not even just Manitou, but it's what I just said in the beginning how Colorado Springs only has one highway going through it. Yeah. We do have a state highway that branches off from that one that goes to Manitou and farther up the mountain it goes to Woodland Park, and that is like a main thoroughfare for all of downtown Colorado Springs, Colorado City, on your way to Manitou, it is the main thoroughfare for a very populated area. Yeah. So people, and it's only a two-lane road, so people get stuck on there for hours, and it's got lights all along it, so you are just stuck there, and it is terrible, and there's no way where to get off. Yeah, that's my least favorite part of getting to Manitou. Yes. It's going through the 8th street area Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah exactly it's almost faster you you it's kind of funny because it's like that road is you know like 40 miles an hour it's almost faster now to go through freaking downtown where it's 20 miles an hour to get to manatee which is just ridiculous or garden of the gods right yeah which you can actually go through the park to get to manatee which you would think yes because people are oogly boogling it you know the park which is fair so you're going like 10 miles an hour, but then you spit out at Manitou. Yes, exactly. So you're through even faster if you do that. And yeah. But just a pro tip, go through Garden of the Gods. It'll spit you out at Manitou. Two for one. But also don't do it because you're going to make it harder for me. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but also, <laughs> Kristen will be behind you going, get out of the way. Literally. <laughs> I'm like, go faster. They're rocks. So... My first story is from Forney because, like I said, like, yes, I did live in Garland, but it's not really what I consider where I'm from because that's just where I lived, like, the first, like, six, seven years. I don't remember if it was six or seven. <laughs> I think it, I think I turned seven in Forney, but I don't really remember. Maybe it doesn't matter, but six or seven years of my life. And I went from obviously being bored to first grade in Garland, and then I started second grade in Forney. And I remember all most of my childhood in Forney. So this is obviously my main hometown. And I even had like felt like I had some sort of weird presence in my house in Forney. And I've talked about that before. And so did the rest of my family. So, you know, I like it's just a lot of shit has happened. I I mean, I think every town has that, you know, Mm -hmm. but like. All home, t- like all towns are old. Like obviously, this land has been around. Every all lands have been around for the same amount of time in the United right. States. But it's just, it's interesting because I think I've talked about this story before. Like the ghost in my house, my mom made a connection with somebody that lived in that house before. Like it was super wild. So I'll probably mm-hmm. tell that story. I don't know if you're going to tell any of your personal stories about Manitou during this episode, but I can. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. Okay. But this one is just about somebody I think it sounds like he saw a random entity walking around the town and brought it home with him oh shit yeah so I don't know what that's all about but spooky yeah so this says about a year ago and I don't know the timestamp on this so that could be eight years ago for all I know yeah (laughs) about a year ago I took an evening walk around my neighborhood as I was walking by this specific elementary school there's like eight of them now and talking on it, and this was actually the one not closest to my house that I went to, but the next one. So it was pretty close to my house that I grew oh, up okay. on. Yeah. And talking on the phone, I kept hearing what sounded like footsteps directly behind me. I turned around to look several times, always expecting to see somebody there, but there was no one. 
Thinking that it might have been the phone playing tricks on me, I ended the phone call and continued walking. I could still hear the footsteps. I thought that it might be my new shoes that were making the noise that I was mistaking for a second set of footsteps, anything to rationalize what was happening. I stopped suddenly in my tracks and I heard a few footsteps behind me before it also stopped. It was getting late and I was getting creeped out, so I started walking towards home. Yeah, fair, like. (laughs) Right. When I was about a quarter of a mile from my house, the footsteps behind me finally stopped. That night I was lying in bed watching TV. The bedroom door was open and I got an overwhelming feeling that there was somebody sitting at my kitchen table staring at me. Fuck that. Right? Like <laughs> somebody's just sitting at the table with their hands just folded in front mm-hmm. of them, just intently staring in front of them. I didn't see or hear anything. It was just a weird feeling. I got up and closed the door to the bedroom and went to sleep. The next morning, my son and I passed each other in the hallway and he said, very funny, dad, stay out of the bathroom when I'm showering. I asked him what? what? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. I asked him what he was talking about and he said you wrote on my mirror and I said no I didn't. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. He said come here. I followed him to the bathroom and he pointed up at the mirror and he said are you telling me you didn't write this? And the mirror fog in the top right corner was the word hi. Huh. My paternal instincts kicked in and I took credit for the writing. I figured there was no <laughs> sense in spooking my kid yeah. and I was already spooked enough for the both of us. <laughs> I took my son to school that morning, and instead of going straight to work, I stopped back by home and told whatever was in my house that it was not welcome and it needed to leave, and I guess it worked because nothing strange has happened since. Oh, thank God. I still take my evening walks, but I do not walk by that elementary school anymore. Yeah, fucking A. I hope to God that kid didn't say anything, like, (laughs) back. No. Creepy. Creeps. Your place is scary. Mine are nice ghosts that just want to, like, be in the town. I mean, it sounded like it was just, like... (laughs) That's fair. They didn't do anything. Yeah, they didn't do anything bad. They were just like, I'm lonely. I'm going to go home with you. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, sup. I just... I'm I'm just going to (laughs) say, you look like a nice person. I'm going to come stay with you. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting at the table going, where have you been? We were supposed to hang out. Also, you caught on to me when we were walking, and I didn't appreciate that. <laughs> I was just right. trying to, to walk, too. Right. So this next one that I have is from Garland. And this sounds like some shit that, like, if... So I did live in an apartment with my friend Brittany for a while. And if this had happened to us, we would have definitely been killed. Like, oh, shit. we were stupid. Like, we would have pissed something off, used a Ouija board. Oh like, my God. 100%. If our apartment had been haunted, we would have not survived that haunt, or we would have like let some shit in or been possessed or something. So this one says, I used to live in an apartment complex on Walnut. And if you know Garland, you know, like, yeah. I always had issues in the apartment with hearing things moving and objects being moved here or there. I did research on the complex and found out it used to be a hotel, and there was a man that was murdered when he answered his door. Whoa. I always have suspicions about if people are like lying about that or not, you know, uh-huh. so take that with like, you never know. Like urban legend. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One year prior to that, there was a woman that died in my apartment. Now that I believe because people just be dropping dead all the time. <laughs> right. Like could have just been a heart attack, you know. While I was living there, there was a woman that came home sick from work one day and never woke up. Then the manager's girlfriend was cleaning the pool and died of a massive heart attack right in the courtyard. There were several deaths in this immediate area of the apartment complex. My friend came up with the idea of placing a recorder. See, this is where I would see. Okay, I wouldn't do this now, but like my ninth, (laughs) 18 to like 22. You're like, what? You can't do anything to me. (laughs) absolutely would have done this. My friend came up with the idea of placing a recorder. Placing? Placing a recorder in the middle of the apartment overnight when all should be quiet and see what would happen. When we listened to it the next day, I was amazed. We heard my front door open and close, wind chimes blowing in the wind, words being spoken, a female voice calling out the name of the manager, a male voice calling out the name of my friend, my kitchen chair being pulled out, and a glass being set on the kitchen table. Many things happen. You must be a hard-ass sleeper. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The name of her friend? Ooh, that's fucking creepy. Many things happened in the short eight hours I had it turned on. 
There were times when I would be in the pool downstairs with my two friends and we would look up and just watch my front windows. We could literally see the blinds being parted as if somebody was looking out at them and staring down at us and then Fuck it would close that. shut. I would not be going back to that apartment. Move. I'd be like, I'm staying with one of you bitches tonight. Yeah. <laughs> we would also see the curtains being pulled apart and someone looking through them. Like a shadow, not like Mm-mm. a person. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. I hate this. <laughs> We were never physically harmed, but I will forever keep a sensitive spot in in my heart for the apartment for the woman that passed there. I think she was just not ready to move on. We have since moved into a different apartment and have not had any issues as of yet. We may. My son has become very sensitive as he gets older to these spirits, and I have always been able to sense them around me. It's only a matter of time before they make themselves known to me again. Well, that was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, I hate all of that. As soon as I actually saw curtains being parted, I'd be like, no, I'm out. Bye. The thing that, so just real quick, like the thing that happened in my house, I'll just like talk about it, I guess, real quick right now. When I was growing up in my house, it was just a ranch, ranch style house. So it was one story and, but we had a lot of like living areas. So we had a sunroom that went out to our like pool and our like patio in the backyard and then off of that we had what we called our den which was like our informal like we watch tv and hang out and then next to that was our like formal living room that connected to our kitchen and our formal dining room and then off of that was the hallway to all the bedrooms right okay so at night if you were sitting in the den and all the lights were out which I wouldn't do that anymore. I was a brave bitch, I guess. Like, <laughs> my ass has, like, some sort of light on usually when I'm watching stuff. I guess unless I'm in my bedroom. But there's no – I usually have the door closed. There's no just open vicinities around mm-hmm. me, you know. If you were watching TV, laying on the couch, and you could see just the darkness of the living room, the dining room, the kitchen to your left – you could see something like blacker than the dark. Like it was a very distinct figure of a man walking from the hallways of the bedrooms to the kitchen. Mm -mm. And Mm -mm. that's all he ever did was walk from the bedrooms. And we didn't know which bedroom he would come from. It could have been mine. It could have been my brother's. It could have been my parents. We didn't know. But he walked from the bedroom to the kitchen. You never saw him walk back. You just always walked that one direction. And we never really talked about it. But once we did, somebody brought it up. And we all started describing the same exact thing in detail. Mm -hmm. And then I would bring it up to my friends. And they would, like, stop me and start talking about it. And I even made one of my friends cry one time because she was like, oh, my God, I've seen it. And so that's how we knew that it we weren't just like seeing things because you can mm-hmm. see things in the dark. Yeah, but absolutely. It was very specific. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for so many people to see it. Exactly. All of my friends had seen it. Even the ones that are like not dramatic and not, mm. and very like, you know, chill, laid back, rational, if you will. They were like, oh, yeah, fuck. <laughs> you know? So. <laughs> And my mom was at a fucking bunko. I don't. What is it with boomers and bunko? I don't. But like, at a bunko party, was sitting next to this woman she'd never met before. Found out that she had grown up in that house and that her brother had died, and he would just always literally get in trouble for getting up in the middle of the night and going to the kitchen to eat. That's crazy and for it, just a random yeah thing to figure that story out. And they just connected at some random bunko party, and they oh both just started crying. <laughs> oh, I fucking bet. Yeah. So. Wow. Interesting little fact there. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And since Amanda did, I'll tell my little house story really quick. I've mentioned it before, and but I'll just say it again. So. I lived in both Manitou and Colorado Springs, and between Manitou and Colorado Springs, there is a little tiny kind of town, but not really, called Okara City, and that is where a lot of my haunted happenings happened, and this one house, this was the one that was the most haunted ever that I had ever been in, and I was eight or nine, I want to say, 
and this house was so haunted that I just randomly would be sleeping on the couch and you could feel somebody standing there staring at you. And I know it was a man. I know it was a man standing at the end of the couch just staring at me while I slept. Come to find out later, this was actually a speakeasy. So people would, there was a cellar down in the bottom where people would drink. You could find old beer bottles and stuff like that from the 1920s. So it definitely had a lot of old energy in it. This is also the house. If anybody has listened to some of our past episodes, I remember being in my bedroom one time and there was a little girl, black hair, all dressed in white, who went racing down the hallway at me and jumped up on, just like jumped up on my bed, just was jumping up and down on my bed like she was a little girl having fun, but it was fucking terrifying. That is so much more terrifying than a black figure walking from one place to the other. (laughs) I, I would have died. Yeah, that house was super haunted. Oh my god. Hmm. I I, w- I would have begged my mother to leave. Yeah, I don't know why. I guess just because it didn't feel malicious. Even the guy at the end of the couch didn't, like, it was creepy. Nobody wants to be stared at. But it didn't feel like he had anything, any bad intentions for me or anything. I don't know, maybe... Maybe the little girl running down the hall with his daughter or something. Maybe he just... I don't know. I don't know what it was, but they all seemed fairly nice. Just doing their own thing. And that's kind of how I've always been. The only time that I have felt negative stuff around me was actually... I mean, I guess it could be like a hometown situation, but not really. When I was a freshman in high school, I actually spent my freshman year in Methuen, Massachusetts. We moved from Colorado Springs to Methuen because I got into a Catholic school there. And the house we lived in in Methuen was incredibly haunted with a very, very negative spirit. And it was so bad that I actually had, I have an uncle who's kind of sensitive like me. And he wouldn't come over to the house. Like, he visited one time, and then he's like, I'm not going there ever again. And it was one of those where I definitely felt it. There was this one room. So at the – you go upstairs, and there's two rooms. There's a room on your left and your right. And then at the end of the hallway, there are two more rooms left and right. The ones at the end of the hallway were my mom's, my mom's and I. And then the ones closer to the stairs on the left-hand side, it was her office. On the right-hand side, it was just storage. And that was where whatever this spirit was, was. And they were, I honestly think that this is part of my fear of the grudge because this is when I saw the grudge was living in this house. (laughs) So it kind of just like added on top of each other. because they're like I would literally I would not get up in the middle of night period like any of those you know I'm thirsty want to go down to the kitchen never would never happen and I would run past that room like I would not I wouldn't look in it I knew there was somebody in there I wouldn't go like I would run past like when you're jumping into bed because you don't want somebody to touch your feet yeah it was that I specifically remember one time sitting, standing at the bottom of the stairs, getting ready to go up to bed, and there was like a little, little face peeking at me around the corner. Like, no, it was, it was fucking terrifying. And I kept telling my mom this stuff. I was like, I'm feeling this. It's feeling really negative. I'm feeling some bad stuff in here. And she kept going, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. She, after we moved, finally, she finally told me, she's like, yeah, I didn't want to freak you out, but your uncle Joe did tell me that there was some bad stuff in there. Could you have just fucking told me? Validate me, please. Yes, instead of making me feel crazy. <laughs> yeah, like, if it was like that, they, like, the thing with the the sun, like, haha, you wrote on my mirror, I'd have been like, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> but, like, I'm right. feeling ghosts. Be like, okay, so what do we do? Yeah, definitely. And it even had one of those, like, creepy basements that you see in horror movies. Right. I would never go down there alone, but interestingly enough i didn't feel any negative energy in anywhere except for that one fucking bedroom so i don't know it was not great though like i would not stay in that house alone whenever i did i would actually so i've been with connor even long distance since i was 12 so we were dating long distance at the time and i would actually sit on the phone with him for hours until my mom would get home and one night i was walking down the steps and i actually 
I mean, I was in sock feet on a wooden staircase, so I probably just slipped. But part of me wonders if I wasn't pushed because I was at, I was at the top, and I slipped and fell, and I actually ended up breaking my tailbone down the stairs. Oh, and he was on the phone with me the whole time, going, "You okay?" At the end, I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'm fine." Yeah. Mm. So that's my hometown or personal stories. Way worse than the little figure (laughs) walk into the kitchen (laughs) yeah yeah i like yours better but i don't know the darker than dark thing freaky yeah Mm. another spirit who is incredibly personal to the people of manitou and she is the main reason why i wanted to do this episode about haunted hometowns is because she needs to be talked about more often and her name is emma crawford Emma Crawford was born on March 24, 1863, in South Royalston, Massachusetts. Musical at a very young age, Emma developed her talent with the help of her mother, Madame Jeannette Crawford, who was a pianist and music teacher. It is said at the age of three, Emma liked nothing better than to sit on the piano cover and listen to her mother practicing Beethoven sonatas. At age 12, she gave piano lessons and public recitals, and at age 15 was able to render the music of the great masters with rare perfection. Playing the piano parts in a series of concerts given by a renowned violinist and cellist in Boston in the winter of 1878. Emma, who'd been ill since age seven, moved with her mother from Massachusetts to Manitou around 1889 in the hope that the local mineral springs, from which the city took its name, and the mountain air might be a cure for her illness, presumed to be tuberculosis. This belief was not unusual at the time, and many people suffering from the disease found their way to Manitou Springs. Emma and her mother initially rented a two-story frame house with a gable roof and bay windows located on Capitol Hill. This house has been identified as one of four Capitol Hill Avenue. You can still hear ghostly piano music coming from this house sometimes when no one is home. Emma ended up, up staying in Manitou in hopes of regaining her health in the fresh air and sunshine. She was reportedly engaged to Mr. William Hildebrand, an engineer from New York who was said to be working on the Pikes Peak Cog Railway. It is said that next to music, nature was Emma's second love. She could be seen in a red dress climbing Red Mountain, which she nicknamed Red Chief in honor of American Indians. The Crawfords were spiritualists, and like many spiritualists of the time, believed they had an Indian guide from the spirit world to protect them in the present one. Many spiritualists at the time equated American Indian spirit guides with having a power to mend physical health. In the Porter article from 1969, the following anecdote is shared, more than likely coming from the 94-year-old Bill Crosby. One day, Emma fancied she saw a handsome buck Indian beckoning to her from the top of Red Mountain. She vowed that she would climb to the mountain and meet her Indian guide. Firm in her resolve, she revealed her plan to her mother and her lover. Both were opposed to such an ordeal for a girl in her delicate condition, as were all her friends and neighbors when they heard of it. But her pleadings were of no avail. She slipped off one day when her mother was teaching piano to a neighbor lady and climbed the mountain to the very top. She was very late getting back, but no one would believe her when she told them where she had been. I did so climb it, she said, and I tied my scarf to a little pinion pine tree on the summit, and I have decided that I will be buried beneath that tree. Crosby, a friend of Emma's, reported that he climbed Red Mountain the following day and found Emma's scarf tied to the tree, along with her footprints at the summit of Red Mountain that Emma wished to be buried a request she is said to have made to a male friend, presumed to be William Hildebrand, while hiking on the mountain. Emma's obituary reports that she had a horror of cemeteries, formalities, and anything low or gloomy, and even death, and wished to be carried high to sunshine and pure air. Emma's death came on December 4, 1891, at 10.30 p.m. Her obituary remarked, The few who knew her here remarked her calm, unruffled mood, And though her life was such, the intimates were few. She knew by nearly all as a musician of rare power and skill. Crosby recalled that Emma's fiancé, William Hildebrand, tried unsuccessfully to get a deed to the site for burial on the summit of Red Mountain. Her burial, the location where a beautiful view can be obtained, however, proceeded. The gray casket with silver handles and silver engraved nameplate was reportedly carried to a hearse and driven up four blocks on Roxton Avenue. Then, a group of 12 pallbearers worked in two shifts to transport Emma's casket to the top of Red Mountain. Crosby, who was a teenager at the time, accompanied his grandfather, H.H. Gosling, to the burial and remembered. They buried Emma on the mountaintop, beneath an ugly, windswept tree, 
and they covered the grave with rocks. Hildebrand stood like a stricken man beside the grave. The mother and other mourners only went as far as the canyon. Crosby recalled that Emma's grave was moved over to the west side of Red Mountain, put onto loose gravel, and covered with a concrete slab when the Red Mountain incline erected a powerhouse and depot on the summit. On August 4, 1929, two boys found a human skull on Red Mountain and were questioned by police. Marshal David S. Banks of Manitou investigated and found wrapped in a bundle of human bones and the handle of a coffin at the back of the Colorado house on Waytham Avenue. A casket nameplate was also recovered, which confirmed the remains were in fact those of Emma L. Crawford. The remains were brought to City Hall. The Gazette reported that a new grave for Emma Crawford would be dug in a Manitou cemetery. Emma's restless remains stayed in storage for two years as the city tried in vain to find surviving relatives. Finally, one of her pallbearers, Bill Crosby, took responsibility for her remains, and it was then that she was interred at Crystal Valley Cemetery. Either way, she was buried in an unmarked grave. In 2004, nine years after her memorial festival began, historic Manitou Springs provided Emma with a memorial stone in the approximate vicinity of where her bones were buried all those years ago. Since Emma came down from her mountain, her soul has not been at rest. She has been seen and heard throughout Manitou Springs. You can hear her playing the piano in the old home she shared with her mother. And Manitou students know, especially since the cemetery is so close to the schools, that when weird occurrences happen at school, there is no need to be afraid. It's just Emma making her presence known. And it's a comfort, even, because she's not a scary presence. She loved Manitou Springs in life, and she still loves it in death. To share some of our love back with her, Manitou residents every October put on the annual coffin races where the pallbearers are runners and there is an Emma in the makeshift coffin and they race down the avenue in heats. The firemen almost always win. Yeah, that's, that's what I've heard is the firemen all be, always be winning. Oh yeah, they're in shape. It's unfair. I've never gotten to go because it's always so crowded. <laughs> it's so crowded. I've gone like once ever. Honestly, though, one day we'll just, when there's not a pandemic, we'll just fucking elbow those fucking crowds and go to those coffin Dude, races because that is not. I think joke. we need. I think we need to be a part of it. Like we need to make a coffin. We need an Emma <gasps> Exorcist's coffin. Yes, come on, man. That would be so cool. Any of y'all want to come build a coffin with us and race it? Yeah, you can stay with me. You have to pass a background check, but you can stay with me. <laughs> That would be so fucking cool. Though. Unless you're I've a always patron. wanted to do that. I will forgive the background check if you're a patron. Because if you pay me money, <laughs> I'm just assuming that you're not going to kill me. That you're okay. It's just a dollar a month, but you're. I'm sure you're fine. You're fine. I'm sure you're, you don't want to murder me. It's fine. <laughs> Plus, I'd be, I go down swinging. So <laughs> it wouldn't be easy. Um, yeah, that'd be cool. Except I don't run. So <laughs> somebody else. You gonna... could be the Emma. Just hop in and we'll get ready. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> is it an uphill or a downhill? Because if it's downhill, I'll give you an advantage. <laughs> uh, it's pretty flat, honestly. Oh, that's good. Maybe even downhill, potentially. I don't know. But like barely. Like a barely downhill. No, yeah, let's let's uh let's do it. It'd be great <laughs> marketing. I know. <laughs> so good. It's like a little little uh, you know the little boy scout derbies but with coffins. Exactly. We'll get Kayla to come join, and she'll she'll help me push. Okay. She's a runner. Come on. She is. A, Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. All y'all. All y'all. Yeah. All right. My husband, our two children, and I moved in with my parents in Forney in the summer of '08. My parents have lived in their house since 2006. The house sat on 10 acres and used to be part of a larger ranch, or so we were told. The previous owners built the house and only lived in it a few years. My husband and I think we knew why they moved out, though my parents did not believe us. I came home one day and set my keys, sunglasses, and a chapstick on the coffee table. I was tired, so I told my kids we were going to take a nap. No one else was home or came into the house while we slept. When we got up, it was time for lunch. I was going to take the kids out to eat, so I grabbed my stuff off the table and headed out the door. When we got outside, I noticed how bright it was, and then I forgot my sunglasses. I went back to where I set them, and they were gone. And I looked everywhere for them. That was in July. In late December, early January, it was really cold. I was outside collecting twigs for a fire, and in a pile of twigs and leaves were my sunglasses. What the fuck? That is some ghost shit right there if I yeah. ever heard it. <laughs> They'd just be moving shit around for no shit. reason. I had no idea how they got there. 
My husband was listening to his iPod while working out one day. When he came in the house, he sat it on our desk and went to take a shower. When he got out of the shower and went to charge it, it was gone. We turned our room upside down looking for it and it was still missing. We had heard the radio turn on by itself and we have heard banging noises and sounds like children playing outside when ours were fast asleep. The creepiest thing, however, was when my husband said he saw a little boy in the dining room one night. Everyone, everyone was in bed, and he came home from work around 11 p.m. He was fixing something to eat, and as he did, he saw something out of the corner of his eye. He turned and saw a little boy in a white nightgown peeking around the corner at him. Mm. The boy looked at him and went back behind the doorway. My husband knew it was not our son and tried to follow him. As he rounded the corner, the boy was gone. He also saw a black shadowy figure run across the doorway in the hall. The mass was around the height of a child. My son was in our room with my husband one day when the radio turned on by itself again. My father and husband were home together when they both heard an unexplained banging sound. Still, my dad did not believe us when we told him the house was haunted. Jesus. I'd be like, I'm glad I'm only here temporarily because y'all think that's <laughs> right? all peeled. Let's make this even more temporary. Like, let's hurry it up. Yeah. But it sounds like they're just, like, kids that lived on the property yeah. just stealing things and fucking around. and Little thieves. Look at this radio. I'm going to turn it on. Like, <laughs> look at this technology. Watch. <laughs> yeah. Or they see an iPod. They're like, the fuck is that? I want right? it. Yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty harmless, but also seeing white nightgown, black shadowy mm-hmm. mask. No fucking thank you. Right. Hell no. Ugh. I hate. That's the worst part about ghosts is, like, you feel them watching you and then you don't see anybody. Or you do see somebody and somebody's just watching you when you're just doing nothingness. Ugh. Mm-mm. Yeah. Hate it. The next one I have is Desperation Mona. Desperation Mona, as historic Colorado Springs investor Spencer Penrose and others have called her, always appears at the same time, dusk, and in the same place, mile marker 13 on the Pikes Peak Highway which Penrose built in 1916. The site is where, in 1932, Winona Mona Roberts' car went off the edge of the road and plunged 150 feet down the mountain. Oh, God, that was my worst fucking nightmare. Dude, Dude I th- fucking terrifying. I haven't driven up Pikes Peak yet, and I know that it's relatively yeah. safe, because, like, you know, you just stay on the road, and you're not going to fucking fall off. But yeah, since, but it happens. Since I've been here, a lady went off. Granted, mm-hmm. she was fucking drunk, but <laughs> still, like, I... Mm. yes literally i have driven it one time it was the scariest fucking thing and i'll never do it again i will take thank god the cog railway is starting up again Mm -hmm. this month actually and i can take that to the top of the peak again because fuck that drive Mm -mm. i know it doesn't happen often but the fact that it happens at all okay while the crash didn't kill her or her new husband mona died after she got out of the hospital three weeks later She expired in a bathtub in the California couple's honeymoon cottage in Manitou Springs. The beautiful young brunette had succumbed to a brain hemorrhage, doctors surmised, but her husband later confessed to bashing her head in with a hammer before he was executed for murder of his five previous wives. Um, bashed head in with hammer versus hemorrhage? Different things. Okay. Since then, storyteller Sabrina Forrest said Friday during a ghost story presentation at the Ute Pass Library, there have been many police reports of people seeing a naked woman with long, stringy, dark hair on Pikes Peak, making gestures of desperation. In 1973, a man who had worked on Pikes Peak for 33 years stopped his motorcycle at Glen Cove one June night after work to have a cigarette and take a leak. When he spotted the woman, he said he threw his leather jacket over her shoulders and gave her a ride to the toll booth down the hill. He remembered her hands around him were clammy, and her breath on his neck was freezing, icy cold, Forrest said. But when he stopped the bike, the woman got off, took off his jacket, and ran back up the mountain. When he goes home, he looks for his cigarette lighter in his jacket and pulls out a receipt from what was then the Glen Cove gift shop, Forrest said. It was dated September 21st, 1932. The next day, he went to the gift shop and learned that the nude woman who had hopped on the back of his motorcycle was a ghost. People, including Spencer Penrose, had known about her for years and had named her Desperation Mona. 
And for somebody as prominent as Spencer Penrose to admit that he saw a ghost, and not only admit, but he's the one that basically named her, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Hmm. And Penrose, like, just named after that. Like he he started this. Yeah. He started Colorado Springs. Like everything, the Broadmoor, all of that stuff. That's Spencer Penrose. I mean, it's hard to like. There's just spooky shit here. Like, yes. I mean, there's spooky shit everywhere, but like the mountain tunnels and like just everything being so dark and all the death that happened, like mm-hmm. just on the mountain and people that were never found on the mountain and hike, like people just be dying. Miners, we had a lot, a lot of mining here. We had all kinds of things like that. I mean, even just Colorado alone is just home to so many weird deaths. Even, I mean, I'm gonna touch on it just briefly, but. Even nowadays, we are the ones that people talk about with these huge mass shootings. But even before then, you know, the Donner Party, things like that, they were in Colorado. <laughs> it's just crazy shit here. Right, right. <clears throat> so this one's actually kind of cool as far as, like, history related. You might like this. Ooh, I'm excited. So I currently live in Garland in the Orchard Hill section between Miller and Kingsley, which Kingsley is a huge road, so this is not that significant but one of the reasons that we moved from garland was because the house that i lived in in garland the driveway backed up to kingsley and oh to kind of give you an idea Kristen, kingsley would be like if there was a house that's driveway backed up to academy okay so you wouldn't want your kids yeah just to no. wander out into north academy you know what i mean right that's really dangerous and so Obviously, my parents didn't want to live there. (laughs) So there has always been a very small Civil War era cemetery located in a small green belt that runs between several houses. There are only 15 or so graves over the years that have been desecrated and vandalized. The only markers that have survived cannot be read. However, after several concerned people contacted contacted the city, they placed a single memorial stone with the names of the deceased. They are said to be the resting places of some of the founders of the city of Garland. My boyfriend and I have been there several times and not only witnessed a spirit, but spoke with and recorded several EVPs. Ooh. He was a soldier who was very kind and laughed about enjoying drinking a- alcohol and smoking tobacco. When my boyfriend began singing the Civil War song Band of Brothers, the soldier can also be heard humming the chorus. Cool. Unfortunately, we have become aware of a portal that seems to be getting more active, and we regularly see shadow people and creatures in our yard and inside our home. We are located only three or four houses down from the cemetery. It is also rumored that this area may have been built over some sort of battlefield between the natives and the settlers in Texas. Oh, shit. So, like, not great, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like, move. Like, you know, if you're opening up portals and shit. Now, obviously, (laughs) they probably are paranormal investigators, so shit's going to, like, follow them around. True, yeah. You know, and so... I just, you're fucking around and shit. <laughs> and the, I real quick, I do want to, this is very short, just like a few sentences. So we do have a, a listener that is on a list for her town being known for UFOs. Ooh, cool. Yeah. So UFOs at Sheffield Park. So this one is from an article about 13 days of haunted hikes in the Berkshires. Berkshires? Is, are you from the UK? <laughs> So, UFOs at Sheffield Park. So, this says, take a spooky stroll through Tom Reed Memorial UFO Monument Park in Sheffield, the spot where Tom Reed, his mother, grandmother, and brother had their now infamous 1969 encounter with extraterrestrials. The quaint area has now become a destination for UFO hunters and enthusiasts of historical landmarks. The Sheffield Covered Bridge is practically next door. Its recent feature on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries has helped to boost its notoriety. Strange lights, orbs, and unusual shadows abound, but be sure to keep an eye to the sky. Ooh. Cool. Oh, that is actually in Massachusetts. Hmm. I figured the if it was America, the Berkshires are that way-ish. But yeah, it is. It is. Cool. Yeah. I did not read much ahead. So yeah, this is Massachusetts. And uh, that is from Emily. So see, okay, that's another thing about New England. I have never been out that way, but that has got to be some haunted shit. Oh, hells yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the oldest part of our 
country. So, I mean, think of how haunted, like, the UK and stuff must be. And they're so much older than us. Yeah. Oh, God. Hmm. Like, I know that, like, obviously, all over the country, we had, you know, natives here. But when we <laughs> started fucking, fucking shit up over there... Oh, God. With all the colonial people. Mm-hmm. They're spooky as shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. My last one is really interesting to me. And I don't know. I don't know how we would do an episode on this, but I would love to really talk in depth about this someday. And this one is in Colorado Springs. And why this is interesting to me is I'm sure many have heard at this point, especially if you're in like the spooky world and you listen about serial killers and stuff like that. The Waleska axe murderers or axe murders. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm, Actually, I don't think so. Oh, so the Waleska axe murder. It was the murder of a family of six in Waleska, Iowa. And it was actually the saddest part is the little girl was actually having like a sleepover. So there were a bunch of other little kids there too. And what happened was... They never caught the person, by the way. Mm. But basically, this this MO is all over the country. So they're pretty sure it was a serial killer. and But they never caught them. And what would happen is they would pick a house and they would pick up an axe from that house or from a neighbor. Because back in the early 1900s, people just had, like, you had to cut your own wood and things like that. You just had an axe, just, like, leaning against the house. So it was an easy murder weapon to just grab and discard. And he would get into these houses, and he would murder everybody in their sleep with this axe. And then he would usually stick to houses by the train tracks because he would just take off again. He would kill people, get on the train, go to another town, do it again. And because that was the M.O., it was so hard to track. I mean, think about it. We weren't taking fingerprints in 1911. So we don't have any of that stuff. We just had an easy murder weapon to grab and an easy way to get in and out on the railroad tracks. So that that murder is very well known. What people don't realize as much is that we don't know for positive. We have not actually connected that this guy was a serial killer, but there are so many stories of these axe murders in other towns right next to railroad tracks so we're some people me being one of them are pretty sure it was a serial killer and Colorado springs actually had one of those murders from this person and that's also super interesting because once again i talked about you know we have all of this stuff here in colorado and in colorado springs like this negative stuff this ghostly stuff like with the mass shooters and stuff like that but we also had i mentioned in another episode Ted Bundy stopped through here on his way Mm -hmm. to do other killings. I actually, my aunt was friends with a girl in Bennett Hill and she was waiting outside one day to have her boyfriend come pick her up. Boyfriend, I say in in quotes, her boyfriend was Ted Bundy. Like he he was going to come pick her up at the school and then she decided, oh shit, sorry, I have to go home and be with my sister or something. That actually saved her life because that was fucking Ted Bundy. So she didn't know at the time, but would have been terrible and that's interesting here because we have yet another serial killer and Colorado Springs axe murders and this article is from the Gazette and I'm, it was really well done so I'm basically just going to read that in its entirety long ago and not so far away I unknowingly bought a house two doors up from a gruesome 1911 axe murder case scene that claimed the lives of one man two women and three children in two separate homes I first learned of the said bloodbath during a conversation with my neighbor, who lives one house closer to the scene, the now-demolished homes at 347 Harrison Place and 321 West Dale Street, just west of downtown Colorado Springs. He didn't know specific details of the incident, so I turned to Detective Google and the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. Six people were killed by a never-found axe murderer in Colorado Springs in 1911. The Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum has a manuscript of the story that appeared in the Colorado Springs Gazette. An account of the axe murders wasn't hard to find online, thanks to a long and scandalously gossipy article about the incident in, you guessed it, ye, ye old Colorado Springs Gazette. In the crowd, this is a quote, in the crowd, 
could be found some kindly, sympathetic friends of the murdered families, but the majority were composed of what one officer termed the morbid curious. The paper reported, Two hours from the time when the crime became known to the street in the 300 block on Westdale Street was filled with automobiles, vehicles of every description, and pedestrians. The crime details are gory. In the wee hours of September of a September Sunday, somebody grabbed an axe that was lying in one of the yards and broke into the house on Harrison Place, where he or she used the blunt end to crush the heads of 30-year-old Henry Wayne, his 26-year-old wife Blanche, and their two-year-old daughter. Then, the killer went next door and enacted the same tragedy upon 25-year-old Alice May Burnham and her two children, ages three and six, before disappearing into the night. In 1911, axe murders that left six people dead near downtown Colorado Springs was big news in the town. A.J. Burnham, the lone survivor of the families and husband to Alice May, was consumptive and lived at the Woodman Sanitarium a dozen miles away, where he was a yardman. When police brought him to the house to show him the bodies, apparently he didn't show the proper emotion and was savaged in the press and assumed to be the murderer. I'm guessing the poor man was simply in shock. If the officers and newspaper men present expected to see the man break down at the site, they were disappointed. Burnham, to all appearances, was the least affected of any of those who stood in the little room. If his face blanched at the sight, it was not detected. If a tear dropped from his eye, it fell unnoticed. If his hand trembled or an eyelid twitched, no one saw it, the reporter wrote. It's often the husband who did it, right? Not so fast. Workers at the sanitarium accounted for Burnham's whereabouts and told police there was no chance that the sick man could have walked that far, committed the crimes, and then walked back. Nobody was arrested. Thirteen years ago, retired Colorado Springs police investigator Dwight Havercorn decided to look into the axe murders from the West Coast to the Midwest. After considering the data, he believes a serial killer was behind the Springs murders, which were eerily similar to others around the country within the same time frame. The perpetrator always used an axe procured from a nearby yard to effect a similar manner of death, and all of the victims lived near the railway. Havercorn suspects the killer rode the rails from city to city, where he or she filled his or her bloody cup regularly. In those days, police departments didn't investigate much. Private detectives did, Havercorn says. They took fingerprints. I've chased that for years. If I could find a fingerprint from any two scenes, it would prove my theory of being a serial killer. That's where I'm stuck. I asked Havercorn if he'd lived in a house stained by a murderous act. It probably wouldn't bother me, he says. One person it would bother is my aforementioned neighbor's husband, Lance Burke, who moved into their home two decades ago. About once a month, he finds himself startled awake as if somebody's in the house, he says. He also claims to have seen shadowy figures out of the corner of his eye, standing in the hallway and toward the back of the house. The first house he hit was the one behind us, Burke says. Maybe he came to the house first and nobody was home, so he went to the second house. It defi- it's definitely freaky. I'm intuitive that way. Weird paranormal stuff happens to me. I've long believed events can leave residue in a home, but I also think an energetic imprint can fade with time. Would I have bought my house 17 years ago if I had known about the murders? Yes. Would I have bought one of the crime scene houses? It depends. If the murders had happened only 10 or 20 years ago, you couldn't pay me to live in one. But if the murders happened more than a century ago, perhaps I would. But only after deep cleansing with a bale of sage and a blessing by energy healers. Let the record show I have never experienced anything even faintly paranormal in my sweet, innocent casa. Hopefully, its former inhabitants are resting in peace and not bits and pieces. But I can't help but wonder if any malignant energy from the various crimes still lingers in the air. I would have bought the house. <laughs> I want to see it. I've tried so, like, I want to track it down and go see the house. But obviously they said it's just a field now, but like the area. Let's build a house on it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> a clubhouse specifically for meetings right? and stuff. Recording sessions. Exorcist's movie theater. Yes. I wonder how big the field is. Right? I don't know. I'm going to go see it. It's Dale Street, so. Mm. I mean, Dale Street runs pretty, it's pretty long. Yeah, like, that's true. There's so many things. Let's just go on a tour of Dale Street and be like, that's the empty that's field. That's the place. <laughs> like, is it for sale? Right. You could build your house there. Not, I don't know if you'd want to live on Dale Street, but there's a lot of areas of Dale Street. Right. Dale Street can be touch and go. Yeah, it just kind of depends on what part of Dale Street 
Doesn't it kind of hit the historic north end, though? Kind of? Or no? Mm, ish. It looks real. It looks not good. <laughs> well, for we do it for the spooks. <laughs> right. Do it for the spook. Where exactly? Or are you telling that's where it is, probably? Oh, I just mean that's the street it's on. It's oh, the okay. The cube okay. cul-de-sac. But it does look like there's... The houses are really close to each other, so the lots aren't very big, but there's, like, one house looks like it has kind of a bigger yard. I'm assuming that's the empty lot that it was on. Mm. Go knock them on their door. <laughs> Can I do a seance in your backyard? All right. I don't even have to come in your house. I just, like... <laughs> Can I sit in your backyard, please? Right. I'll bring the Ouija board. No. <laughs> Contact a serial killer. <laughs> Just ask him a few questions. We would like to interview you for a podcast. We want to know if you are a serial killer and did all these other ones. Just what other towns did you hit? Yeah, like it. At this point, you're dead, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, you're not going to get caught for it. But it's he'd be like those motherfuckers in prison. He's like, I'm not telling you, even though I have a life sentence, anyways. Right, exactly. Because of their fucking pride. Exactly. Be like, but we want to make money by writing a book. Right. <laughs> we'll share it with you, even though you're dead. We'll put it towards your estate. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us for this haunted happy hour. If you have anything to add about your hometowns, please send it in because we can always circle back around to this. Like, we, you know, we have like serial killer and conspiracies we can always circle back around to those too we just have ongoing ones we can always hit again so exactly let us know if you are interested in continuing this you can find us on all of our socials it is the extra sisters podcast except for twitter which is at the extra sisters and you can always email us at the extra sisters at gmail.com until next time stay creepy